This is Melissa, and it is the 28th of May, 2023, and today's Redux is number 111, and it's Alan Watt talking with Patrick Timponi of One Radio Network. Patrick is still on the go. He's had a show for, I think, since this show, since about 2008. His focus has been, for the most part, health, nutrition, that kind of thing, but he very often covers current events and history, and he had Alan on as a guest a a few times, and this is a talk that they did together in January of 2014. I thought they covered some interesting things, and some of it tied into what's going on right now. So I wanted to share with you a few stories that have come to my attention this week, and then you'll be getting... just a little bit more than the first half of this interview. One of the things that we've been hearing about that to me is pretty disturbing is where we are in Canada on assisted suicide, euthanasia. There's a piece from The Atlantic. The Atlantic is a pretty left-leaning publication. This is their June issue, I believe, but the article was from May the 4th, 2023. The author brings in John Stuart Mill and the beginnings of liberalism. I didn't want to read that part. I'll post the article. You can read it for yourself if you want to. It, this is called The Outer Limits of Liberalism. It said in 2016, the Canadian government legalized medical assistance in dying. This medical assistance in dying, they call it MAID, M-A-I-D, was founded on Good Million, John Stuart Mill's Good Million Grounds. The Canadian Supreme Court concluded that laws preventing assisted suicide stifled individual rights. If people have the right to be the architect of their life, shouldn't they have the right to control their death? Shouldn't they have the right to spare themselves needless suffering and indignity at the end of life? Now, I'm just going to say something right here. When you put these decisions in the hands of the state, this is what Alan always spoke against. These decisions can't be in the hands of the state. It's as simple as that. And the case in Canada is so clear. It's a vivid explanation of why that doesn't work. Continuing on with the article. As originally conceived, the MAID program was reasonably well-defined. Doctors and nurses would give lethal injections or fatal medications only to patients who met certain criteria, including all of the following all of the following. The patient had a serious illness or disability. The patient was in an advanced state of decline that could not be reversed. The patient was experiencing unbearable physical or mental suffering. The patient was at the point where natural death had become reasonably foreseeable. 
To critics who worried that before too long, people who were depressed, stressed, or just poor and overwhelmed would also be provided assistance to die, authorities were reassuring. The new law wouldn't endanger those who are psychologically vulnerable or not near death. Citing studies from jurisdictions elsewhere in the world with similar laws, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau declared that this simply isn't something that ends up happening. In other words, people who are psychologically vulnerable and not near death will not be endangered by this law, because Trudeau said that just isn't something that happens. But the program has worked out rather differently. Before long, the range of who qualifies for assisted suicide was expanded. (laughs) This is somehow not surprising at all. In 2021, the criterion that natural death must be reasonably foreseeable was lifted. Of course it was lifted. I mean, of course it was lifted. lifted. This was where it was designed to go all along. A steady stream of stories began to appear in the media describing how the state was granting access to assisted suicide to people who arguably didn't fit the original criteria. For example, the Associated Press reported on the case of Alan Nichols. Nichols had lost his hearing in childhood and had suffered a stroke, but for the most part was able to live independently. In June 2019, at age 61, he was hospitalized out of concern that he might be suicidal. He urged his brother Gary to bust him out, to bust him out of the facility as soon as possible. But within a month, he applied for a physician-assisted death, citing hearing loss as his only medical condition. A nurse practitioner also described Nichols' vision loss, frailty, history of seizures, and general failure to thrive. The hospital told the Associated Press that his request for a lethal injection was valid, and his life was ended. His brother told the Associated Press Allen was basically put to death. In the New Atlantis, Alexander Rakin described the case of Rosina Camus, who had fibromyalgia and chronic leukemia, along with other mental and physical illnesses. She presented these symptoms to the maid assessors, and her death was approved. Meanwhile, she wrote in a note evidently meant for those to whom she had granted power of attorney, "'Please keep all this secret while I am still alive.' because the suffering I experience is mental suffering, not physical. I think if more people cared about me, I might be able to handle the suffering caused by my physical illnesses alone. She was put to death on September 26, 2021, via a lethal injection at the age of 41. In the free press, Rupa Subramanya reported on the case of a 23-year-old man named Keanu Vafayan, who was depressed and unemployed and had also, also had diabetes and had lost vision in one eye. His death was approved and scheduled for September 22, 2022. The doctor who was to perform the procedure emailed Vafayan clear and antiseptic instructions. Please arrive at 8.30 a.m. I will ask for the nurse at 8.45 a.m. and I will start the procedure at around 9 a.m. Procedure will be completed a few minutes after it starts. 
the Fein could bring a dog with him as long as someone would be present to take care of it. About two weeks before the appointment, Vefeyan's 46-year-old mother, Margaret Marcilla, telephoned the doctor who was scheduled to kill her son. She recorded the call and shared it with the free press. Posing as a woman named Joanne, she told the doctor that she wanted to die by Christmas. Reciting basic maid criteria, the doctor told her that she needed to be over 18 have an insurance card, and be experiencing suffering that cannot be remediated or treated in some way that's acceptable to you. The doctor said he could conduct his assessment via Zoom or WhatsApp. Marcella posted on social media about the situation, and eventually the doctor texted Marcella, saying that he would not follow through with her son's death. So, You can read the rest of the Atlantic article that I will post for you, but this shows you that, yes, indeed, Canada relaxed its requirements on assisted suicide. Now, Alan and Patrick Timponi don't get into this, but they do talk about eugenics and sterilization, and I think that there are many different components, certainly, to eugenics and how it is applied to us, whether it's tinkering in the womb, abortion, assisted suicide, um, gene therapies of various sorts, CRISPR technology, etc., etc. I found a piece that that just came out on the 23rd in a publication called World because it's associated also with broadcasting, and it has a Christian slant. A vicious tradition of eugenics. Does the government really believe it's better to be dead than poor? When confronted with the cold, hard truth of the harms of chemical abortion drugs for women and girls, our federal government responded by lamenting that fewer abortions will increase the population of people of color and the poor. Now, just I'm going to read that again. When confronted with the cold hard truth of the harms of chemical abortion drugs for women and girls, our federal government responded by lamenting that fewer abortions will increase the population of people of color and the poor. This is the U.S. 23 years ago, the Food and Drug Administration illegally approved the use of chemical abortion drugs mifepristone and misoprostol, characterizing pregnancy as an illness and arguing that these drugs provide a meaningful therapeutic benefit. The reality couldn't be more different. The FDA never studied the safety of the drugs under the labeled conditions of use, surprise, surprise, ignored the potential impacts of the hormone-blocking regimen on the developing bodies of adolescent girls, disregarded the substantial evidence that chemical abortion drugs cause more complications than surgical abortions, and eliminated necessary safeguards for pregnant women and girls who undergo this dangerous drug regimen. All of this, of course, was in addition to approving a drug as therapeutic when its whole purpose is to take the life of an innocent child. 
Since the FDA failed to abide by its legal obligations to protect the health, safety, and welfare of women, Alliance Defending Freedom sued them. We filed the first lawsuit of its kind, holding the FDA accountable for its reckless endangerment of women and girls, and soon will be arguing before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, urging it to protect women and girls and to halt the FDA's illegal mail-order abortion regime. Instead of owning up to the glaring failure of the FDA to meet the minimum safety requirements required by the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act before peddling a drug that poses such risk to women and girls, the federal government provided a stunning response. In reply to our lawsuit, the FDA defended its actions on chemical abortion by offering the testimony of Jason Lindo, held out as an expert on, in the economics of so-called reproductive health care. He writes that, quote, rigorous quantitative research, end quote, shows that children who come into this world because their mothers can't obtain an abortion, quote, are expected to do worse in school, and they are also expected to have lower earnings as adults, poorer health, and an increased likelihood of criminal involvement, end quote. This affidavit, included by the Biden administration in its defense of chemical abortion, further trumpets chemical abortion because it will reduce taxes by lowering the need for social safety net programs. The affidavit states that those with limited economic resources and women of color will disproportionately be affected by a reduction in chemical abortions. And he laments as one of the costs of reduced chemical abortions, quote, increased taxes due to increased reliance on public assistance and social safety net programs. This sounds eerily familiar. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion profiteer in the world, unabashedly advocated for using eugenics to reduce certain populations, people of color and the poor. Planned Parenthood has been trying to distance itself from Sanger's racist and horrific comments, but the Biden administration sees abortion as a way to reduce costs by eliminating children who might enter the world in less prosperous circumstances. It is difficult to deny the similarities between Sanger's white supremacist remarks and what we see today from federal government officials. It is unconscionable to justify ending the life of an innocent child because the child might struggle financially, may impose costs on taxpayers, could grow up to be a criminal, or may possibly score low on a test someday. There is no slippier slope to walk down than determining whether someone deserves to live based on an economic quantification of the costs they will impose and benefits they will confer on society. As Supreme Court Justice Clarence, Clarence Thomas wrote, abortion has proved to be a disturbingly effective tool for implementing the discriminatory preferences that undergrid eugenics. This is a good article. I will post it, and you can read it in its entirety. One article that I did not have time to pull up this morning, but I will try to find and post with the rest of the links, was talking about 
the the fallout after what happened in the U.S. in what they call the post-Roe era, Roe Roe versus Wade, of young women that now won't have easy access to an abortion. And one woman was brought forward. She had some sort of disease, I don't recall what it was, that meant that if she became pregnant, now this doesn't make sense, right? If she became pregnant, that could jeopardize her life. And and uh, she was saying in the article, thankfully she had opted for sterilization some months before the Roe v. Wade outcome. Now, I didn't look into the disease that she had, but that's a kind of a flimsy argument, unless the argument was that if she carried the pregnancy to full term, it could jeopardize her life. If she went through the process of childbirth, it could jeopardize her life. Because if indeed her disease was such that even becoming pregnant would end her life, then I would think that that she would either not be sexually active or would be uh, sterilizing herself as a precaution but not using it as a political uh, a political whip. But anyway, this is the kind of thing that we will get more and more and more of because what, what, what you know human life is under attack from every direction, everywhere you look, from the food that we eat to what goes in our body and who tells us that it has to go in our body, etc, etc. We're clearly under attack. There is one other article that I wanted to mention that I thought was was quite good, if I can find it. This is in Canada's paper, um, National Post, and this was from May the 16th. This was a poll that they did. One-third of Canadians fine with prescribing assisted suicide for homelessness. Roughly the same number told a poll they were fine with approving made for someone whose only affliction was poverty. One-third of Canadians are apparently fine with prescribing assisted suicide for no other reason than the fact that the patient is poor or homeless. The results, results were contained in a recent research co-poll probing just how comfortable Canadians were with the current state of the country's made medical assistance in dying regime. Starting in March 2021, Canada became one of only a handful of countries to legalize assisted suicide, even in instances where a patient does not have a terminal illness. Okay, so think about that. We learned in the other article this started in 2016, but you basically had to be on death's door. You know, there's no foreseeable help for you. The disease that you are suffering with is a physical disease, and it's terminal. Starting in March 2021, Canada became only one of a handful of countries to legalize assisted suicide, even in instances where a patient does not have a terminal illness. Ever since, a Canadian can be approved for made simply by having a grievous and irremedial medical condition. Research Co. found that 73% of poll respondents favored the current regime and only 16% oppose it. Pollsters 
also found not insignificant numbers of Canadians who favored assisted suicide in cases where no medical condition of any kind was present. If a Canadian's only affliction was poverty, 27% said they would be fine with legalizing that person's access to MAID. Another 28% pegged homelessness as an appropriate bar to qualify for MAID. And 20% of respondents were fine with MAID being handed out to anybody for any reason. In other words, one-fifth of respondents agreed with the sentiment, medical assistance in dying should always be allowed regardless of who requests it. Notably, these most absolutist supporters of assisted suicide were pretty evenly distributed among age groups, regions, and even political demographics. 20% were conservatives, 20% NDPers, that's liberal, and 20 that, and I should say NDPers are very liberal, and 22% of liberals, so three parties, 20-20-20, evenly spread out there. So it's a pretty even distribution there. One of the more controversial aspects of MAID has been a number of high-profile cases in which Canadians with serious illnesses opted for death only after years of failing to obtain proper medical care. The Research Co. poll found a slim majority of respondents who were fine with this too. 51% endorsed inability to receive medical treatment as sufficient reason for an assisted death. I mean, to me, I'm sorry, I didn't think I could be shocked, but this is shocking to me. 51% of those polled think that the inability to receive medical treatment is reason enough to have assisted assisted dying. I mean, where where are the people who are outraged that people who need medical treatment in Canada aren't getting it, you know? Where, where is that outrage? It goes on to say, it's not the first time that a poll has found significant numbers of Canadians willing to expand MAID well beyond its original purpose as a form of euthanasia for the terminally ill. In February, an Angus Reid Institute poll similarly found 61% of Canadians favoring the country's current uh, MAID regime. Canadian comfort with MAID may explain why it so quickly has become more widespread and liberalized than in almost any other jurisdiction offering legalized assisted suicide. Canada is notable for its relative lack of checks on the procedure. MAID can be approved and administered by nurse practitioners, whereas most countries require the approval of a physician. Canada is also experiencing a skyrocketing rate of MAID deaths well beyond anything experienced abroad. While only 2,838 Canadians opted for assisted suicide in the first full year of legalized MAID after it became legal in June 2016, as of last count in 2021, that had risen to 10,064, an increase of 32.4% over just the year before. The practice of referring or recommending assisted suicide has also spread well beyond the traditional boundaries of the healthcare system. Notably, MAID is routinely practiced within the Canadian prison system, despite similar measures proving deeply controversial in Belgium, a pioneer in assisted suicide legalization. 
made for the mentally ill was supposed to become legal in March, but in one of the only instances of Canada pulling back on its rapid expansion of assisted suicide, the date was ultimately pushed forward into 2024 in order to prepare for the safe and consistent assessment and provision of made in all cases. There, uh, There is another article that I don't have up that talks about young people, children really, but uh, uh, 12 and older need to be able to make this decision for themselves. And so there is definitely a loosening and a widening of restrictions that we're going to be seeing very soon, probably within the next year or so in Canada, regarding children. So there is one other article on this topic that I'm going to put up for you entitled The Boston Brahmins, Wasps, and Nazis, The Pursuit of Eugenics. And uh, this, this went up a couple of days ago. This is a very libertarian publication, and they're going to get into the economics of it. I don't necessarily agree with their logical outcomes here, but I think it's some interesting history of eugenics in the United States. Especially, I mean, and Alan has pointed this out repeatedly, everyone wanted to point the finger at the Nazis, but both... Great Britain and the United States were really the leaders of the eugenics movement. But one interesting thing that I will bring to your attention here in this article is talking about someone by the name of Richard Eli. And Richard Eli was an academic. He was at Johns Hopkins University, and there he mentored Woodrow Wilson. And when Wilson became Princeton's president, he excluded black students from enrolling. Now, I didn't, I did not know this, but uh, so having absorbed the skewed beliefs of Eli, New Jersey Governor Wilson signed a sterilization bill targeting the hopelessly defective and criminal classes. I point this out, and you can read uh, the article yourselves, but I point this out because Alan was talking about as far back as the League of Nations, um, the depopulation eugenics sterilization program, and uh, the the president in the United States during the time of the formation of the League of Nations, and a big proponent was Woodrow Wilson. And what this article does not go into is who are the handlers, and that is so important. And again, Alan mentions that in this talk. You know, the names of the politicians, neither here nor there, but who is behind them. And so you might want to look into the so-called Colonel Mandel House, who was really uh, the puppeteer for Woodrow Wilson. Find out a little bit about his background. But this is all... Interesting because we're still very much in the eugenics depopulation mode. It has never stopped. You know, what what happened with Hitler and the Nazis, all this did was change the name from eugenics to bioethics, etc., etc. One other, couple of other things, actually, that I wanted to mention to you today. I was thinking about the news because Alan was talking with Patrick Temponi about how you have you only needed to control a few news sources, a few news outlets to completely shape people's minds and bring about 
standardization of opinion. And one of the things, we're, we're going into this election cycle in the U.S., there's this crazy nonsense going on with Twitter. Is it going to be the the source of news for a lot of people? And I don't look at it much, but the other day someone sent me somebody's tweet and I looked at it and I just scrolled down that, that, their, that Twitter feed a little bit and I realized you really could get lost in the world of Twitter because these feeds, they go on and on and on. They seem to scroll endlessly about varying topics, so you could just be, you know, moved from one idea to the next idea. Uh, but whatever I think of it as a news outlet, I think it is going to be a significant player in the way people receive their information, an increasingly significant player, I, th I should say. And... What makes me laugh, um, evidently, Elon Musk hosted Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis when he announced his bid for the U.S. presidential nomination. And, uh, you know, I guess it was a bit of a technological disaster. It took him 25 minutes, maybe longer, to iron out all of the malfunctioning before the governor was able to announce his run. But one of the things that I find interesting in all of this is the characterization of Elon Musk as conservative, let alone far right or to the right. This is not a conservative. Near as I can see, he is a puppet player, an actor on the stage. Everything that he has been involved in, his so-called businesses, that he has been allowed to run as he plays their game, these businesses all fall in line with the agenda. There is nothing conservative about moving us out of the combustion engine into an electric vehicle, right? I mean, is this conservative? Is sustainability conservative? Is this a conservative value? Is the green agenda conservative? You know, so the, the, these are laughable ideas. But what really is interesting is looking at the woman, uh, what was her name, Karen Yaccarino or whatever, I don't remember, the woman that's going to be his the CEO of Twitter. And her involvement basically in, in the American Ad Council, the National Ad Council, which is, this is controlling how Americans see news. The This is propaganda ad campaigns for the American people, and she's going to run Twitter. And Twitter historically has been this kind of very, very, very short form uh, for dissemination of information. You know, a tweet, a tweet, you know, it's a tiny little thing. Uh, but, and, you know, people use it to make their comment, and you start to get interested in what somebody's comment is. Um, it's a little bit schizophrenic, frankly. But uh, be that as it may, we're going into an election cycle. And so what is really important is for Americans not to pay any attention to what's going on in the rest of the world, but only think about Biden and Trump and DeSantis and RFK Jr., etc., etc.
but I always try to pay a little bit of attention to what's going on in the rest of the world. And one thing that is happening right now is evidently the Arab world is trying to structure some kind of, I I don't know that you call it a, a peace agreement, but some peaceful talks that are happening between Iran and Saudi Arabia and the rest of the region. This is from Newsweek from a couple of days ago, maybe Thursday it came out. And Amir Avivi, the brigadier general in the Israeli De- Israel Defense Force Reserve, told Newsweek, Iran is everywhere, and it's not new, but what is new is that the possibility of war is getting bigger and bigger. There's more chance of a large-scale war than ever before, that is, in the last 20 or 30 years. Avivi, who previously led the Israeli Defense Establishment's Auditing and Consulting Department and now serves as CEO and founder of the Israel Defense and Security Forum, identified two ways in which such a conflict could erupt either through an Iranian or Israeli first strike. The first scenario is one in which Avivi said Iran builds enough forces and they feel Israel is maybe not strong enough, especially in the last months with the demonstrations and political issues that have plagued Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's administration. Eyeing this opportunity, Avivi said Iranian officials could decide this is the time for a coordinated attack. And this can be very surprising because using rockets, missiles, drones, it will be very fast, Avivi said. This is not divisions of tanks that you need weeks to prepare. The second scenario entails Israel needing to attack the nuclear capabilities of Iran, which has always denied its nuclear program was intended to be weaponized. However, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi has pressed forward with nuclear development in the absence of a functioning nuclear deal that was abandoned by then-U.S. President Donald Trump in 2018 and has not been revived amid ongoing quarrels between Tehran and Washington under President Joe Biden. But Avivi said Israel won't let Iran become a nuclear power and is willing to act unilaterally to this and, and to this end, even if it means wide-ranging repercussions. If we do it alone, this will create a regional war, Avivi said. It's obvious that Iran will utilize all its proxies and a regional war will bring depression and crisis all over the globe. While Israel continues to count on the United States as its ally, Iran's successes in rebuilding ties with Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries have raised alarms in Israel. I'll post that when you can look at it. But th- this this next article from Fox just made me laugh in a kind of a sardonic way. From Friday, Iran regime close to getting nuclear bomb. But what's the holdup? Iran has not declared whether it has a nuclear weapon because the, quote, costs of doing so would outweigh the benefits, end quote. And I saw that headline and I thought to myself, How many years, and I mean for how many years, and it's an awful lot of years that I have been hearing that Iran is close, is almost there, is dangerously close to enriching its uranium for a nuclear bomb. Okay, so this is a constant. It's trotted out 
over and over and over. But here you go from Fox. Iran has moved dangerously close to enriching weapons-grade uranium for a nuclear bomb, but the regime has not yet crossed the critical threshold of declaring it has built an atomic weapon. Fox News Digital reached out to experts on Iran's more than two-decade effort. I wonder which experts they were. Were they, uh, you know, in the IDF? Hmm. Okay, so they reached out to experts on Iran's more than two-decade effort to join the small group of countries that have atomic weapons for explanations about what is stopping Tehran from crossing the nuclear threshold. If there is reason to believe that there are a number of retardants that have put a pause in their weapons development, they'd relate back to targeted attacks, attacks by the U.S. and Israel, who clearly are very much concerned about stopping the mullahs. So, anyway... We're at a place where we are over and over again. Here is President Abbas from Palestine, who said that the PLO is founded to foil Zionist movement's attempts to eradicate Palestine. President Mahmoud Abbas said today, on the 59th anniversary of the founding of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, that the organization was founded in 1964 to thwart the plans of the global Zionist movement to obliterate the identity of the Palestinian people and to be the opposite of the Zionist nationalist project. The PLO preserved the independent Palestinian national decision and protected the national project from being lost. The establishment of the PLO and its representation of our people are one of the most important achievements of Palestinian politics. I will post that article. You can read it in, in full as well. And Alan, one of Patrick Timponi's listeners, wrote in an email and asked, said he was living in Israel, maybe was an Israeli, I, can't, I don't remember right now, but had a question about what was going on there and Palestine, etc. So I think that you will find the talk interesting. Uh, one last little aside, I was listening to some news this morning, and some I, I won't say the outletter who was talking, it's all just pretty ridiculous and not the point that crossed my mind, but this expert, this PhD in international affairs, China in particular, was talking about what is happening right now, the threat um, that China is to the U.S. and what the Chinese aggression in Taiwan and so forth. And he said, the trouble is... America's military has been an amazing, wonderful deterrent. Now, that's what he called them. <laughs> They're just a deterrent, you see. The U.S. military is just a deterrent. And he said, because they have been such an amazing deterrent, the world has experienced peace for the last 50 years, at least. He said that we've experienced, he said we've experienced peace in the world unlike any other era that we can remember. Going back, far back in history, the American military, the job that they are doing in deterring conflict is bringing us unprecedented peace. And then I stumbled upon one more article, and this headline said, Failure to back Ukraine would send signal to China about taking Taiwan. This is a U.S. senator, um, 
I don't think it matters who it is. Oh, Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Lindsey Graham. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter except if you want to chuckle. So Lindsey Graham said, if the United States fails to back Ukraine enough in the war against Russia, that would send a signal to China that it could take Taiwan. And that's what he said uh, in Kiev to Zelensky on Friday. And I thought, well, you know, talk about what they call it three-dimensional chess. And I thought, this must be like 33rd-degree dimensional chess. You know, we have to think about what we're doing in Ukraine and make sure we're doing it zealously and aggressively enough. Otherwise, China's going to take over Taiwan. And this is the world that we live in. I do think it is good to pay attention to as much as we can about what is going on in the world, but because it's good not to navel gaze. It's good not to think that whoever you are behind for the next election is going to change anything one jot or tittle. It won't. And hopefully along the way, we get to have a little bit of that... uh, what might remain in our empathy or compassion for people other than ourselves and our own kind and see the entire world is under this orchestrated attack. So here's Alan and Patrick. Okay, let's call Alan Watt, see if he's home. Hello? Mr. Alan Watt? That's me. This is Patrick Timpone. How are you doing? I'm good, sir. Good to talk to you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you live? I'm up in Ontario, Canada. Uh, oh, you moved? Uh, I've been here for a while, actually. Oh, you have? Yeah. Why did I think you were in Europe? I don't know. Oh, well, I've been here before, too. I used to live in uh, some European countries. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's right. So what's most interesting to you in that you'd like to talk about this morning. Now, what's what's going on in the world that you think my listeners would be curious about? I, I think everyone's curious uh, because the news doesn't explain the whys of things. And we have facile uh, excuses as to the whys of things, in fact, which make no sense to most people. Uh, various wars, etc., etc. Uh, there's always economic wars going on. There, there always have been economic wars and most wars really are always economic, all done through history, from the times of ancient kings and Middle Ages as well, going off to conquer other kingdoms, to steal their, and plunder and tax the people. People don't realize that a small elite always live off the, the produce and the taxation of the, the bulk of the populations. Uh, at one time, they, they did know that and accepted that slavery was a normal thing. In the 20th century, in came a thing called democracy, which was a great cover for the same thing, uh, and and they, they, we, we bought it all because it was presented in a great package to the general public with the, the idea of freedoms, etc. But as you can see with the way the world's going today, with a global system which was planned an awful long time ago, we're being taxed into the ground really, and uh, they're now taking away all the freebies and the goodies that we used to have and the cheapies, uh, and so everything's getting very expensive. This is the planned uh, society, world society we're going into, that many of the top uh, socialists talked about over a hundred years ago, in fact, 
all through the 20th century as well, up to the present. That's where we are today. And so when they talk about austerity, they mean bringing you into a system where you're taxed for everything that you do, everything that you need will have high taxations, your food, shelter, clothing, heat, energy, all these things. Uh, that's where your, free, your extra money will end up going to down the road. And um, again, big players in the la- last 20, uh, 100 years have, have put this out in their books, lots of professors and so on. They're all on board with it, by the way. Under various guises, they've got to bring it in by terrifying the public uh, of global warming, CO2 and all this kind of thing. So uh, these are the excuses they're using for, for, for bringing all of this system in. Yeah. So you're saying it's, it's been a long time plan, well planned, to keep taking more money from the people. Now we're, we're hearing about wealth taxes, bail-ins, right? Taking like they did in Cyprus. Yeah. Um, austerity. You guys got to tighten your belt here. We need more money, higher taxes, what's going on in France. Mm-hmm. So why do these people, whoever they are, and we'll talk about that, why do they want it, do, why do they want it all? I don't, I don't, uh, uh, I don't get their, that. They think it's their rights. Elitism has always existed, uh, even, even thousands of years ago, small groups of elites. And we've had it done through history with... Uh, even moneylenders, big moneylenders, the big boys, the big families that do this. And they formed their clubs a long time ago. They wanted to bring in this planned society, which was to eliminate all competition, by the way. Eliminate competition. And that's what they always do. Whenever they, they come into a country or an area, they, 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 they dominate markets. They eliminate all competition. And, and they, they run politics, too. They end up running into politics. They don't have to even be in politics. Some of them are, but they don't even have to go into politics. They own politics. Uh, as I say, it's a fantastic sham, this system of democracy, uh, and the way it's been presented to the people. We're trained to believe in it. We're actually trained from childhood to believe in it. And we swallow it, thinking it's all true. And for your whole life, you're caught up on left versus right, etc., uh, and nothing changes. Things get worse and worse. And it isn't until you go into the books of one of the biggest elitist groups uh, that's probably the, the, the world's largest, and that was the, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, as it's called in London. What, what, say it again, please. The that's the, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And it's, it's, it's American group, which is called the Council on Foreign Relations, which also owns the, the, the runs the, the trilateral commission that Brzezinski and all these big boys belong to. They were quite open in their, their agenda quite some time ago as to their function and where they're bringing, they're going to bring the world into. They also, uh, the, the Royal Institute of International Affairs also runs the Fabian Society, which is a far left, uh, but they also run all, all the far right groups as well. Uh, and when you go into their writings, especially by Carl Quigley and others who belong to it. I mean, many of their members uh, put out their memoirs and they're quite blatant about where they're taking the world. And it isn't to this planned society, population reduction, a global system, the free transportation or, or tax-free transportation for themselves, that is, for the international corporations under free trade. So that they have free trade with the movement of goods, services, uh, and labor across all borders. Borders were to, were to be eliminated altogether. And they had planned for the 21st century to bring this, this all into completion, to get people off the roads in their cars, uh, 
to bring in agribusiness corporations that run all massive farms, get everyone else off the rural areas into the big uh, cities, and then manage the populations, uh, and, and even maybe even go down the road into compulsory sterilization eventually, to eliminate even ethnic groups, to mix them all together, was a big, big thing too. Except for the elites themselves, who interbreed like crazy, and always have done, but they think it makes only it easier for them to run the world. So you won't have small factions trying to compete with each other. It'll be, it'll be an easy uh, conquest, an easy way to run the world that way. This is their big, big utopic uh, plan that they have. Hmm. Alan Watt is with us, Cutting Through the Matrix. He's written a lot of things. You can see all of his books, all of his writings on his website, um, Spiral Bomb Paper Books. You can get some pretty very interesting, uh, curious things to think about if you're into that mood. It's 11 minutes after the hour. If you have a question, comment for Alan Watt, Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com, Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Also, uh, telephone number 888-663-6386. A more basic idea, Alan Watt, how do you think this whole Affordable Health Act Act thing, also known as Obamacare, Mm -hmm. how does it fit in with their plans, whoever they are, and that we'll talk about. Yeah, it, it's diff- it has different functions. Remember, it's not even Obamacare because Hillary Clinton was already working on it with with groups uh, when she when uh, a few, quite a few years back actually, when she was with her husband, and he was a president. So this is an old plan again because uh, if you go back, you have to go back into again the Royal Institute for International Affairs Dash Council on Foreign Relations uh, that set up. Initially, the League of Nations, which was a precursor to the, to the United Nations at the end of World War I. In fact, they admit that they were behind fomenting the, 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 the circumstances that brought about World War I in order to get a, a war, massive war going, to bring the countries to their knees, hoping then to unify the world under one government. And some of their members, such as H.G. Wells, said, well, the people haven't surrendered their sovereignty. We'll need another war. He wrote, he, wrote, he wrote about this a couple of times. And even after World War II, before he died, Wells said, uh, and remember, he was a founding member of the Fabian Society. He, he said, um, well, we've had another war, and it still won't go to we'll need, we'll need another one. Uh, so that's what we're going through today. So if you go back to the League of Nations, now, the Royal Institute of International Affairs set up the League of Nations, eventually the United Nations, they were top bankers that, that formed the Royal Institute for International Affairs initially. And Lord Alfred Milner uh, was one of them. He was at the, one of the top guys uh, eventually. And he was from Germany, but he, he was in Britain and he was a lord. And he his plan was to foment wars across the world to bring all this about. But he wanted to bring in a standardization of a monetary system which they would control. And so they set up the Bank for International Settlements to, to regulate all trade, commerce through finances. Uh, the IMF, uh, they set up um, the private central banking system, is all theirs, by the way, including the Federal Reserve in the U.S. And eventually they would bring in blocks, trading blocks as well, uniting whole blocks of countries like the, the complete Americas uh, and uh, the, all of Europe, of course, and then eventually a Far Eastern Pacific Rim. That was over a hundred years ago they wrote about this. Uh, we're, we're watching it all come to pass. But the, but the League of Nations, as far back as the League of Nations before it became the United Nations, they had a Department of Public uh, of uh, Population Control. 
and they also had the early precursor of the World Health Organization. And way back then, 1918-1919, they said that they'll have to bring in universal health care. And this universal health care would be mainly, again, the public would see it. You must jump for it, thinking this is fantastic, you see. Uh, but the public will jump for it. But the, the real uh, job was to bring in mandatory inoculations, upgraded every day, every year, every couple of years, with booster shots of all inoculations, which, by the way, they're pushing for now, all through adulthood, and and and, and compulsory sterilisation. So uh, this will fulfil all of that. Uh, when Britain. And in the last 15 years in Britain, as the National Health Service, for instance, plummeted. Uh, documentaries were put out by even the BBC, talking about how they conned the public in so many ways to save money by cancelling... Uh, well, actually, they were giving uh, questionnaires out to, to lots of the, cust- uh, of the people who were waiting for operations for cancers and things. And in the questionnaires, they asked them when they were going on vacation or holiday, when they did that, they then sent out, come in now, we're going to do your operation, knowing they were not going to be there. That's one way they legally go around dismissing these people from their lists. But what they did during that whole time was to bring in uh, uh, vasectomies and, and, uh, and um, abortions. That was the top of the list, and hysterectomies. Uh, tubal ligations, etc. These were mandatory priority operations. Everything else took the back burner or, or weren't done at all. So, so remember, healthcare has many functions, uh, and, and the public always see it as we're getting something for free or for, or for, for something that's going to be cheap, but it's not that way at all. What do you, what do you make of this di- disaster rollout of Obamacare? Do you think that this was a planned event to to get people's minds off of what was really going on? It's partially that, but it's just time to bring it in. As I say, they were working on it when, when Bill Clinton was in, in office, and his wife kept talking about bringing in this new health care system. Uh, many of the, the party that she belongs to were working on it, and they had the insurance companies then doing all the preliminary, preliminary examinations to, to, to what kind of system would they bring in. They employed the RAND Corporation, and I have a copy of the RAND Corporation report. They were employed to do a survey to find out the best system to use. And in the RAND report, it said, uh, and you can get that if you search for it for PDF form, uh, they said that they copied the British system. Well, God help you. Mm-hmm. God so help the you. goal really is a single payer. They want the money. They want the money, but they want the political and social control. If you want this from us, you better take these shots. You better uh, take these shots, you better do this. And you better, and, and if you've got maybe three children, if you want this down the road, this is, good, this is definitely going to come. You, you should get sterilized now. This will come down there, this is going to come in. Uh, eventually it will be sterilization. They've always, for over a hundred years, have talked about the gradualism of a healthcare system where eventually they can use it for social political control and, and eventually, uh, on, on the, the various classes of people, they can bring in mandatory uh, sterilization. If you want this in society and that in society, we advise you to get the sterilization because you belong to the wrong socioeconomic group, etc., etc., et Or you have this gene. Or you have that gene. That's a big one right now. And that's what one of the big pushes for eugenics uh, with all the nonsense uh, that they've been churning out for years at the condition of the public that it's an actual, a, a very a verifiable uh, science. But it's not. 
but they're going to use this. Yeah, oh yeah, your your, your child could have this and that and that. So we advise uh, sterilization. They've already done this. Actually, they're doing it to women right now. Your child might end up this and that and the other. And lots of them are opting for abortions because they've been trained to believe in experts, you see. Here's an email from Kyle Lutz. She says, please keep up the good work, Alan White. Thank you for what you're doing. Any suggestions on how to turn this new world order thing around? And how does Fukushima tie into all of this? This is also overwhelming. I'm trying to keep it together here. Mm-hmm. Well... It's not so easy to turn something around when the bulk of the population are caught in the false paradigm, which is called normalcy. Lord Bertrand Russell talked about how they'd create a a reality for the public. He said, if if we want to get children to believe that snow is actually black, we can do it universally, and eventually they will believe it. Then this next generation will come, all believe it, they'll never question it. That's basically how uh, our reality works. It's very simple, really. And we, as individuals, because we're, we're the most studied species on the planet, they're not the insects or the animals, we are. We, we've been for thousands of years. And um, how, we, how, how we find out how sane we are, or how acceptable we are amongst our peer groups, we'll bounce off ideas uh, to, to our friends, and they'll, they'll bounce them back off. And, and we know if, if we're the oddball or we're not, if we're acceptable, we all want to be acceptable as a human trait to, to our peer groups. And so conformity is a big, big thing. In fact, it's being stressed stress more than ever today is to conform, conform, conform. Uh, and most folk want to conform. That's why they have the, this particular type of group think education in school now. You're being trained as a group. Or the whole of common core and all that stuff. All of that, yes. Uh, and they've got the same system, by the way, in Britain. It's actually a little bit ahead of America. The U.S. will follow shortly. They have GIRFEC in Scotland, for instance. They have a system in England. It's exactly the same, where the state now appoints a guardian employee from the state to, to, to be the guardian at that child. Even if you've got two parents, and, and, and it doesn't matter what, what, what class of society you live in, and they come in and take a lifelong assessment of that child as it grows up. Wow. To make sure that it's, it's completely politically correct if, if the child will show any inquiries along lines that's it's not politically correct, uh, they'll, they'll readjust it. They'll readjust that child to make sure it, it uh, conforms to the rest. For world peace, you understand. <laughs> yeah. Fukushima, something stinks about it, even, even the news coverage and so on. So we're just not really getting, we don't really know what's going on, is what you're saying? We really don't. If there was a, a, a world disaster going on, the big boys themselves would, 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 be, would have all her money and top scientists and, and, and engineers over there fixing it. If it was going to damage the world, either it's completely overblown for a purpose. But got to remember, too, they want to eventually take out most of the reactors across the world for, for austerity, bring you down to austerity. Uh, that, that's part of it, too. Take off the reactors to get away from nuclear? Yes. Maurice Strong is a big player in this. Uh, um, he's, he was Rockefeller's protege. He works at the United Nations. He's a big, big, big player. And in the 90s, uh, he was brought over from the United Nations by the Canadian uh, or the Ontario uh, Prime Minister, unless the Governor of Ontario, you might say, and, and put in charge of the electric companies, the hydro companies, to privatize them. 
And he wrote uh, large articles in the paper saying, this is the future we're going into. He says, eventually, uh, we'll start to phase out these uh, nuclear reactors and bring people down into this uh, austerity of energy. Austerity of energy, which would be what? Back to coal-fired, more of those? I don't think we even want that. You understand, part of the... I mean, Maurice Strong is pretty blatant about it. Way too many people, he says. What they really mean is too many of the wrong kind of people. Uh, This is not just for Ontario or Canada. This is for the world, eventually. And he's at the United Nations. He went right back to it after he privatized the system. But he says, all we'll have is energy and, and massive uh, state-funded, in other words, we'll pay f- uh, for the installation and the creation of massive generators which will power essential buildings like hospitals, big business, corporate businesses and so on, and the rest of the public will be given uh, some meager rationing of, of energy, whatever kind that will be. So that was that was back in the, in the 80s and, and, and early 90s. So we're, we're, we're going through a plan, you understand. We live through a script and uh, uh, I noticed that even when I was very small, you know, that we were living through a script. You cannot have these private organizations, private individuals with world meetings going on all the time, making their agendas, never being discussed in, in the political realms, and yet, and yet it's introduced by the political realms under different guises and it all comes to pass. That's impossible otherwise. So you, you get to realize there's, there's a group above politics that runs the whole show. Here's an email from Eli. He says, I live in Israel, and I'm very confused. I have some non-politically correct questions. Mm -hmm. Why is Israel put on the side of the imperialist? My understanding is that the powers that be are actually trying to reduce, eliminate Israel, see the real story behind the assassination of Prime Minister Ishtak Rabin, by inventing this non-historical people called the Palestinians, looking forward to your comments. Mm -hmm. Well... There's different uh, aspects to all of this. Every group in the world will be used. And one of the best ways to be used and the easiest ways to be used is to really believe that you're a people. And we've found that done through history as the set peoples against people, you see. You'll find as empires rise and fall, you always have the same people moving in to the empires to create the empires. These are the guys with the cash. It's a strange, this, until the money situation is solved, nothing will ever change. Power could never get to the people uh, if they don't have con- command of, of the money-making system. And they don't, and they never have, and it's not intended that they ever shall. Now, Israel, if you go into the history of Israel, and, and I'm not talking about the, the, the present-day history. The present-day history of, of Israel has been rewritten. And many uh, authors in, in Israel and, and uh, like, like Shlomo Sands uh, have written about lots to do with Jewish history and the fallacies of it too. He's not the only one. There's lots of professors in Tel Aviv who have written books about it as well. When, when the Zionists came in, the Zionists was a political movement, but it was also tied in with a world socialist and communist movement, completely tied in with it. Uh, it was also a messianic movement because they used the, the old idea of, of Jews were to be a light to the world, etc., and show the people how to live. And, they, of course, they used it for warfare purposes in some countries instead. But, but the fact is it caught the imagination of lots of people. 
and so they were set up in, in Israel, modern day Israel. If you go into the writings of, say, um, uh, there was Lieutenant Governor Storrs, S-T-O-R-R-S. He was a Lieutenant Governor for Israel, or Palestine as they called it then, on behalf of Britain at the end of World War I, uh, through the 20s and 30s. And he was in charge of setting up immigration. There was mass immigration long before World War II into Israel. In fact, from the 1800s, Rothschild in London was sponsoring early groups to come in from Russia mainly. But you, you, you find that in his memoirs, Mr. Estors, he says, we have set up in the Middle East. Now, who's talking, who is he talking on behalf of we have set up? As a lieutenant governor for their, on behalf of, of, of England and the king. What do you mean we have set up in Palestine an Ulster? Now, Ulster is what they did in Ireland to create dissension down through the centuries. Because Ulster would always be faithful to the British or the monarchy rule in a country where the native people, the Irish people, were going to be dominated by incomers uh, who would be called lords, etc., etc., uh, who would use heavy force to keep the people in check. In other words, dominate the people, subjugate them. Same thing as Israel. Why would he say we have created an Ulster? You see? So... They're very good at doing this, using different peoples to come in, create a base, give them a reality, uh, and, and, and they have no idea there's a bigger purpose behind all of this. They have no idea at all. And the purpose is? The purpose is, these guys work centuries in advance for their plans. And they knew, and Winston Churchill knew it, because he talked about it in, early, in the early 1900s, uh, about all of the, 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 the whole region of the, the Arab countries, the Arabian countries, and even into Egypt too. But uh, he said that eventually there'll be massive wars to take over these countries for the oil which is here. Because he said the 20th century will be a century where oil will be in incredible demand. He even talked about northern, uh, uh, later on he talked about northern Iraq. Uh, would be a focal point for war as well because of the vast oil fields which they knew then were under the ground. Uh, everything that is known way ahead of time, way ahead of time. And so the, the, the big boys who really own international corporations had to put something in the Middle East long before they were going to go in and, and bomb us. They, they needed bases. They needed an ally there, someone who would be on their side. And who would profit from it too? To take over those countries. They also fed to a lot of the Israelis, uh, uh, again, the messianic policies of, of, of re-establishing an Israel from the, uh, all, all the way to the Euphrates. In other words, a greater Israel. In fact, the, the first prime minister they had in Israel talked about this. So they didn't, didn't want a little place called Palestine. They wanted a vast place from Egypt to the Euphrates. Uh, and that's where it's going today. So technically, people from Israel, some of them will uh, be eventually put in charge of a lot of these ex-countries. Uh, this is part of the plan that's ongoing today. And this control that Israel has over the United States it's talked about, mm -hmm. what is that about? Well, there's no doubt at all about that. If you look at some of the Israeli newspapers over the years, various prime ministers, I remember when Bill Clinton was in, and the prime minister there, another one says, don't worry about the U.S., we own it. You know, It's rather blatant, there's no guessing 
about uh, how, how they put it across in their own newspapers. It's straightforward. So uh, that's still um, a policy today. You know. Is there any real kind of split going on between the United States uh, with Obama and 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 uh, what's his name, Netanyahu? No. That's all. You understand that the guys like Obama or any prime minister, I try not to even learn their names today because I realized long ago it was irrelevant. Really low on the totem pole. Yeah. In fact, um, again, Professor Carl Quigley, who was all for this world system of socialism, a type of Fabian socialism and elitism, because the ones at the top believed they, there was definitely, they were the top of the Darwinian tree, you might say. And he believed that. Intelligentsia should rule, etc. And but he, he said that uh, in the United States, he says there hasn't been. And this was the 1960s when he wrote his tragedy and hope. And his even better book, I think, was called The Anglo-American Establishment, where he goes into this in more detail. But but he said there hasn't been a president in the United States uh, for 60 years, uh, over 60 years. Uh, that hasn't been appointed beforehand by our organization. He also said a prime minister I, as well from the, for the other countries. So it's much like they do in the Middle East where they'll go in and maybe take over the Bank of Iraq and, you know, when they invade them and then they appoint their person to, to run the bank or run the country. Uh, that's correct, yeah. Same way. That's the same, same way. Same model they do in, they're trying to do in Syria. Exactly. Syria. Exactly. And, and, and you'll find too though, um, that the front men are, are meant to take the rotten tomatoes. That's where they put them in. What do you mean? Oh, you mean take it to take the hits from the people? That's it. But you see, under democracy, we don't, we don't vote new people in. We, we vote the old guys out. We're so sick of them. That's how it works. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so they're going from left. Well, let's go right wing this time. Or let's go left wing. And, and the agenda, and Thomas Jefferson talked about this in his own writings. He says, when you see the same agenda going forth and continuing between changes in the House, meaning the Congress, Know your underturned, he said. Wow. Thomas now, Jefferson wrote that. Yeah. Wow. And when you go into the League of Nations, then the United Nations, and all of the, all of the treaties that have been signed constantly, the IMF, the BIS, all run, all run by one organization, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Yeah. And set up by them. And then, then you, it makes sense because no, no president or prime minister is going to cancel a treaty signed by the previous one on, on finance, finances, or, or, or foreign aid, which goes to their, their own corporations, as you well know, in other countries, or any of these agendas. Uh, when a right-wing group comes in, they, they don't slash and cut back on, on, on the, the massive debt. They, they do a lot of bluster and fluster about it. It's a show for the public. But, but in other words, uh, Quigley said, it doesn't matter, he says, uh, we only need the, the ones at the top. We don't have to get all of the politicians in. But only the ones in the top. He says left wing, right wing. He says we have communists, we have fascists, we have we have all kinds. He says, he says, and and they all do our bidding. So that's how it really is. So the front man uh, is just that. He's, he's a, the guys behind him are far more important than advisors. So so they all, it's almost like Alan Watt. They let him do what he wants, even though he does dumb things, because then the people don't like him, and then they're just gonna. Get all excited about getting the, the next party in the next time. Yes. Oh, I, I, it's fantastic. See, we, we, we live in hope. <laughs> yeah. 
And, and we think, oh, well, we can four or five years, we can get another guy. And this is how it goes on. And your whole life long, you'll watch these changes, but nothing changes. It gets worse and worse and worse. Uh-huh. Mm. Do, you, do you think the amount of people that maybe believe what you just said and the amount of people that believe what the masses believe, what side do you think is growing? Uh, with the, with the ones who believe. You know what I'm saying? Say, say if you're correct with your analysis. Mm-hmm. That side, there's a group of people that are, say, yeah, I, I think I know he knows what he's talking about. That group, is that growing mm-hmm. more than... What's growing? What's growing? There's a difference between understanding and being educated. Remember, education doesn't mean you're correct. Right. You, you can be educated in, say, communist philosophy. <laughs> right. Uh, or whatever. Or, or whatever, yeah. Uh, and, and so, for those who, th- who believe they understand everything, they, they, they will not understand everything, uh, because this is a very clever, clever system that was thought up an awful long time ago. Uh, and as I say, we're the most studied species on the planet. There's a big difference between reacting. See, most people react to what's happening in their own lives with finances, bank crashes, uh, unemployment, something's been driven home to them because it affects them personally. Other folk who are doing a little, little bit better financially and so on, they feel more secure, are also feeling a little bit nervous because maybe they're not so quite secure. Uh, so they'll always look into the financial side of the world and, and that's what they follow, etc. Everyone follows the thing that they think is going to affect them the most. They don't understand the big picture. Now, you understand too, uh, and I've, I've gone over the, the history of some of this. Rockefeller, for instance, and a, a few of you, the top guys at the time, back in the 1930s, or actually the late 20s, they got a group of guys together to find out, again, like the Rand Corporation idea, uh, to study, a think tank, to study how, how many newspapers would have to control to standardize public opinion on everything. And they came up with the ideal number for the United States. They also did their demographics for the different classes. They put out the Harper's Magazine, all the different types for these ones will be read by, by bureaucrats or work for us, etc. Et so everyone's catered to with a, a form of the reality of the system. But they never gave up on that and said, well, that's it. They, they expanded and expanded and expanded uh, to, to have massive chains of, of TV, radio, and newspapers, and it's all connected together by the same peoples. You standardize opinion and also standardize education system to fit the reality they're going to give you. Uh, it's, it's really so, so, so precise as that actually. So most folk again are, are in a false paradigm, but they don't know it because everyone else, when they bounce off their ideas, will bounce it back and say, yeah, I believe the same as you. So I must be sane. If, if all agree on the same things, we must be sane, you know. That's how simple it is to control vast. Plus, You'll, you'll notice we're never, there's not a generation has been given peace for hundreds of years. Uh, you're either being sent to war or, 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 or you're having bank crashes. Bank crashes are standard for about twice a century. It's planned that way. If you went to the history, uh, at least twice a century you get plundered by the banks who never get punished for it. Uh, we pay them to plunder us. We bail them out. Uh, and, uh, and, and they, they, right after, after that, they're giving themselves their big bonuses again and so on without a problem. No laws are written into it that change any things. So they, and it's not meant to because they want to do it again, you see, when it's the time's right. 
because impoverishing the public and increasing taxation, you pay off the debt, which they will lend you to pay them back with. For them. I mean, it's just an incredible system. Uh, it keeps them... Uh, you see, that that's the power. That's the amazing power of money, this strange, abstract thing called money that's put in the hands of a private few, you know. We're talking with Alan Watt. Fascinating. It's been years since we've talked with Alan and... Cutting Through the Matrix is his website, CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. My name is Patrick Timpone, and this is OneRadioNetwork.com. It's the 21st of January, 2014.